This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 45. This is Writing Excuses, fantasy world building with Patrick Rothfuss. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Howard. And I'm Pat. We have Pat Rothfuss with us. Once again, we are super excited to have you back, especially for this podcast. We're going to talk about fantasy world building. Uh, And we've got some fascinating listener questions. And uh, the first one is actually about urban fantasy. How do you create timeless urban fantasy? I'm just going to read this person's question because I think they, they phrase it really well. Stories set in fantasy worlds or distant futures don't have to deal with cell phone upgrades, but... I can't write a story about magical teens from Baltimore without giving away the exact year by how they use their phones, laptops, tablets, etc., and by the music they listen to. So, someone's writing urban fantasy, something set in our world but with magic or monsters or whatever it is. How do you make that timeless? How do you not pin it down to such a specific time that it eventually is no longer relevant? I will say this is one of the great joys of writing secondary fantasy is, like, my world gets to stand like separate from time and uh, it isn't, doesn't end up dated like science fiction or urban fantasy. But what I've seen interesting is like the movie it follows. Um, I, and I've seen this done more in movies than I've noticed it in urban fantasy, but in it follows have you guys seen that one horror movie? And like, if you have sex with somebody, uh, oh, sorry, spoilers. Uh, if you have sex with somebody, a demon follows you. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, a, it's, it's really good. It's, it's very good. It, better than my awful summary <laughs> depicts it. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't do ad copy. But what's amazing about the world building there is like, you don't know when it is like one of them, kind of has a cell phone, but it's in like a weird clamshell. And it has like a video phone in the top half. So it's sort of like a flip phone. And it's the world that is depicted is deliberately not this world, but obviously still pretty close to this world. And because of that, any discrepancies like or logistical inconsistencies don't necessarily damage the verisimilitude of things, which is a marvelous trick that you can yeah. do visually very and, easy in and a movie. And I think, I think uh, coming, coming back to the original question, uh, when you want to make something timeless, to my mind, what you're saying is, I want people in 20 years to be able to read this and to enjoy it without, without thinking that you know, oh, the technology changes of the last 20 years make this story irrelevant. Right. Um, and and I don't know that the problem is as big as the person asking the question is making it out to be. Yeah. I think you can tell a timeless story. Uh, I, think if, I think if the teens in Baltimore— are using phones, and you describe them using phones the way we use phones, and then pull back just a little bit. You don't need to tell us what apps they're running or what memes they were looking at or, 
you know, which version of the phone it was or which jailbreaking whatever they needed to do. The phone is not the plot. If the phone is the plot, then you're you're writing something that's an urban fantasy tech thriller and you kind of need to pin it down. Yeah. But in this case, you don't need to pin it down. And so they can have iPhones. I, I would also say uh, somebody who, in my opinion, does this very well is Jim Butcher. And he dodges it. First off, cell phones are sort of off the map because, you know, he very cleverly instituted that magic makes cell phones not not work yeah, well. Technology in general. But more importantly, as relevant to this question, he does not reference pop culture that is not ubiquitous. There is, there's references to Star Wars and Burger King and stuff like that. And I don't know how much he did it intentionally or if it just was intuitive, but like he doesn't talk about that local diner. Well, yeah, I mean, he's also talking about his favorite restaurant, which is Burger King. Right. So, and, and I'm, I'm saying this partly because he, I don't think that he's doing it intentionally, he, but he is he is writing things that he he knows and enjoys. And that's one of the ways that you can make something timeless is by talking about the things that you know and enjoy. And in, you know, 20 years, are either of those things going to be in public consciousness? Who knows, you know? Um, like Charles DeLint, if you want to look at timeless urban fantasy, Charles DeLint is one of the first people who's really writing urban fantasy, and we still read Charles DeLint. There's no effort to make that anything else. And if we go even farther back than that, then we have Charles Dickens, who is, I mean, Christmas Carol is urban fantasy. Mm. It is unquestionably, the term hadn't been invented yet, but it is a fantasy set in a city. The city is a character. It is urban fantasy. And it's timeless because of the story, not because it isn't pinned into a time. That is a real, I think that really deflates the entire underlying fear behind the question. It is set in time, but is a timeless story because it focuses on things that are always important, like character, whatever. Mm -hmm. Also, like uh, a fine and private place Mm -hmm. is, you know, or honestly, a newer one uh, that more people maybe have read, The Graveyard Book. Yeah. People will read that for a hundred years and it is not. And I think maybe what they might be touching on, though, is like, how do I write something that is set in this world and have people in 15 years not be baffled? Because, like, here's an example. Did anybody read the Spellsinger books? No. Alan Dean Foster wrote a series called oh, yeah, Spellsinger. Yeah, 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 I did. And yes. they rocked my world as a kid. But now I think of going back to them, and I'm like, those were all modern day at the time rock and roll lyrics that I kind of knew just because I listened to the radio. I think they are absolutely opaque. Yeah, these they may days. be incomprehensible but to a modern not, audience. But I, I think they'll play differently to a modern audience. But, you know, things that are old, they just. They just play differently. Like uh, Jane Austen is filled, granted not writing urban fantasy, but mm-hmm. still filled with references. And and again, Christmas Carol is filled with references to things that are important to people in the contemporary world. Yeah. But we they they play differently to us but now. I, I will also say some things are timeless, and some things do get stale, like yeah. weirdly stale. And I think. Like, I don't know if you can you – know, Star Trek probably isn't going to go stale, 
Um, but I don't know. In some ways, that's the peril of the genre. Like, yeah, I, I want to, I want to take a step back on this uh, on this question a little bit because the fear that the fear that it won't that it won't be that it won't be timeless. Um, boy, if you want your things to still be read twenty years from now. You may never write another word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you really because I mean we've been comparing you to James Jane Austen and Charles Dickens, and there's so many things in here that will be write the story that you want to write, and don't borrow trouble from the future. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is good. I, and just to con to contextualize that, I remember working on my book. It's the year. Uh, 1999, and there was talk about the Lord of the Rings movie coming out. And it was big news. Oh, Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, these movies are going to be awful. It's going to ruin the public perception of fantasy. I need to get my novel out before that happens. And this, this, uh, this huge, gargantuan train wreck pulls the rug out from underneath, like, my thing. And so, like, I was speculating on the future in a not unreasonable but utterly unuseful way. Yeah. You know? Um, and and I'm glad I didn't waste too much time worrying about that. I'm going to mention two other urban fantasies that I think uh, handle this, this question in another way. Um, Harry Potter is mm-hmm. an urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and one of the ways that that, that gets around the problem— Um, or the perceived problem, is that most of our time is spent in the hidden world. So we're not actually interacting that much with the the contemporary world. So like the, you know, Harry Potter, any of those books could play today because the people in the wizarding world don't use cell phones. They don't use the same technologies that we use. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one is the October Day series by Sean and McGuire. And those, the way she handles it is, at the beginning of each chapter, she gives you a date. And she's like, I am going to pin it. She just mm. leans in and is like, no, this is exactly when this is happening. So I think you can play it either way. And that it's not, it's not a problem if you're pinned into a time that people will still continue to read it. I, don't know, I'm, I just narrated book 13 and she puts out one a year. So people have been reading these books for 13 years. The beginning books, there are not, there are not cell phones. Mm-hmm. But that first book still plays. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to reiterate, as, as long as you've got really great characters that we love in a plot that we care about, a lot of these other concerns are going to fade yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's actually, our book of the week is, in fact, a timeless urban fantasy and Pat, you were going to tell us about Something Wicked This Way Comes. It is, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but it's 
it's going to always probably be in my top three. It's amazing. I think it might be Bradbury's best book. Um, I recently reread. I loved it before I was a father. And reading it as a father, whoo boy, get ready to cry. Um, uh, not that I'm a hard target these days uh, in terms of things that make me weepy. Uh, it is so good. The language is beautiful and timeless is a perfect word for it. Despite the fact that there is like a traveling carnival, mm-hmm. it is it is a great. I would think that would be a masterclass. Read that book. And see how beautifully it depicts this world that you can still engage with, you know? Now, that said, you will also probably see things and you'll be like, hold on, what is a sideshow? You know, there are certain mm-hmm. cultural predispositions that, like, we are lacking and that I imagine a 20-year-old would be lacking you know, even more than, than I am because he's writing before my time too. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, the concepts, this is about being a child, being a father, you know, feeling out of place. There's a traveling lightning rod salesman. Like there are no traveling salesmen anymore. You know, like there are no, like who thinks of a lightning rod anymore? But nevertheless, this is, this is a beautiful book. Awesome. Thank you very much. So we've got another question to to talk about in the second half of our episode, which is creating a secondary world fantasy that is compelling and exciting but does not necessarily have or rely on a magic system. How do you make that world cool without leaning on the magic system to do that work for you? Can we talk about Amberlo by Lyra Elena Donnelly? Yes, we can. And and also Swords Point by Ellen Kushner. Mm. Both of these books, neither of them, there is no magic in them at all anywhere. And both of these books, what we've done is we've just stepped to the side of the real world. Uh, they both look at actual history and file the serial numbers off. Um, and, and what they're looking at are the patterns of real history and and in many ways, they are um, in some. They feel almost like alternate history, not you know, an alternate mm-hmm. history rather than a secondary world, because what they're doing is they're looking at the politics, they're looking at the relationships. Guy Gabriel K. I also I find does much of the same thing. That there's not a magic system, not not really in well. It, it depends on the uh, depends I mean, on which one. But. Yeah, but um, oh shoot, I've just lost the name of uh, the the novel I was going to mention. You know the the one I'm talking about that doesn't. There's not really a magic system. Uh, most of them, yeah. I don't know. But sailing the Serantium so, is the say, one that that's, I. That's yeah. the one. Yes. Yeah, the uh, the uh, follow up he did that's set in that same world is called Children of Earth and Sky, which is actually my favorite of his. And there is no magic to speak of except for one sequence. Uh, that lasts, you know, for maybe about a third of the book where there is a ghost following somebody around. And he doesn't bother explaining how this works because that's not the point. <laughs> the story is not about the magic. And, and and to some degree, it's not even about the ghost. It's what is the relationship between that ghost and the person that the ghost is talking to. And the rest of it, like you say, is all politics and fascinating cultural details and how are these two cultures clashing against each other. And that's what draws you in. I'm, my approach to secondary worlds is if you've ever uh, 
if you've ever taken a tour of, say, the Grand Canyon, you've ever stood on a seashore. I got to stand uh, on the shore of the North Sea when 50-mile-an-hour winds were blasting sand around, and everybody's telling me, you're an idiot. You're supposed to be inside when it does this. What's wrong with the American? Well, the answer is, I have never been sandblasted by icy sand on the shores of the North Sea before. This is amazing and kind of horrifying, and I'm going back inside now. (laughs) Um, There's no magic in that, but there's a ton of wonder. And when I build worlds, okay, the worlds I build are usually for science fiction. Um, I want interesting geography. I want Mm -hmm. geography that is built around conflict. I want geography that shows us that this world has a history and that this world is a changing dynamic place. And boy, you set a fantasy, you build you build an epic fantasy in a secondary world whose geography is inherently problematic. I'm glad you said that because it, it reminded me of the thing that I love um, about these books, but but also one of the things that plays in with urban fantasy, which is that the the place is the character is a character. And with a really compelling secondary world fantasy, the place is a character, which is one of the things that that I like in your book so much is that the college mm. is a character. Yeah, I was going to say really, but yeah, the, the university is absolutely it is it is deep enough to feel real. Um, and and although there's magic, that's not. I would actually argue that uh, there's. Depending on how semantic we want to get here, I would argue that most of what happens in the university isn't magic. Yeah. Um, any more than, um, like, you could tell the story of a young boy who goes to MIT mm-hmm. and learns about mm-hmm. superconductors. Um, I mean, it's it's fantastic. Like, uh, hydrofluoric acid. Like, do you know about it? If you touch it, it is absorbed through your skin and eats all the calcium out of your bones and kills you while you're in excruciating pain. That's just in this world. Um, uh, you know, like, and most of sympathy and sigildry is pretty much just thermodynamics. Um, most of alchemy, yeah, I mean, you could argue, but there's a sliding scale between pretty much science and then all the way over to naming. Naming is actual magic. Um, I would say if you're making a secondary world and you don't want to have a magic system, I would warn you, you might be really niche um, and unappealing to a broad market um, like a couple of these other books I'm about to mention, like Lord of the Rings and uh, Game of Thrones. Because, like, read those first two Game of Thrones books. There's no magic. Mm -mm. Like, a dude just pours alcohol on his sword and light. It's like, that's the only, it's like somebody knows about a dragon once. Also a dude lit his sword on fire just by burning it. That's the only magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Lord of the Rings, yeah, there's Gandalf. He doesn't do magic. Well, his pine cones on fire. He like talks loud and like flaps his cloak about. And it's, I mean, yeah, he does do some magic, but to claim that there's a magic system, there is not. Yeah. At the end of the book, he's like, oh, he had the fucking flame of Arnor. He had the third elven ring. But, like, that's not a magic system. Um, it's kind of a prop. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, um, 
I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you're right, there is no magic system. And there's... And, we, and I, I would actually like to, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but I would like to say there is a difference between, because these days, and, and what you touched on is, what is the joy of secondary world fantasy? And the joy there, one of the joys that is available to you is the joy of exploration yeah. of, of a strange world. And one of the things you can explore in a strange world is language, culture, geography, Technology, food, food, um, magic, you know, and you could actually have magic as a subclass of technology in this breakdown. Um, uh, because, like, what the Taoist alchemists were doing in China might as well, I mean, you call that magic or tech. Hell, Newton, what Newton was doing historically, it's like, eh, horse of peace. Like, maybe alchemy, maybe science, kind of, he did both. Newton was an alchemist, by the way. Fight me. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, magic is just a thing that you're, you have the opportunity to explore in a certain way if there's a system. And Brandon creates a system, and one of the joys is learning the permutations of it. But you can have magic in a world and not have an explicit system and have it just be something that exists without exploring it. Yeah. Um, and I think some things that you see there, there's a book by David Keck that I don't think anyone but me has read. Um, David Keck, In the Eye of Heaven. And it was the secondary world, dark ages fantasy that was written with prose like an impressionist painting and there, I mean, there were gods in it that also were kind of real and dark things in the forest. Is that magic? Is that a magic system? Is Catholicism a magic system? Yeah, we could go way down the rabbit hole semantically here. Well, the, when, we, when we make this dividing line between, uh, between urban fantasy and, and epic fantasy, um, I think the— I think the dividing line might actually be the word magic. Mm. Because with urban fantasy, you have people in the world who don't believe that these things are possible. And then when they see elves, they're like, Ooh, that was magic. <laughs> okay. But in, uh, in the worlds that Brandon creates, um, everybody's just kind of, they, they recognize that these are just physical principles. The word magic, as we use it to mean, oh, no, that breaks all the rules. It's, it's magic. In, in a lot of these big secondary world epic fantasies, even if, the, even if you're using that word, what you're really talking about is you've created a world whose rules are... And, and you used the term wondrous hmm. earlier. And I think um, the spectrum, I, when I talk because I, I talk a lot about fantasy world building and magic systems, I think there's a spectrum. And on one end of it, you end up with the scientific. And the joy of that is exploration and comprehension of a system within which the characters can be clever and therefore the reader can enjoy their cleverness. Um, and on the other far end of the spectrum, um, you have the numinous. And that is where wonder lives. 
there's not a lot of wonder uh, in my in the university about sympathy. It's clever. Um, and over in the numinous, you have all wonder. And honestly, the numinous is where Lord of the Rings lives. There is a system, but it is implicit, not explicit. It's like some of N.K. Jemison's work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where she she wants that numinous quality. And, and it... One of the things that I find interesting is because people are pattern-seeking creatures, <laughs> we will attempt to find a magic system even when there isn't one. And that's that's one of the things that you I think you can play with when you're doing your world building is um, whether or not you have a magic system, that you will often have characters who think that there is magic or characters who think that there is not, and that characters who are wrong about both states. Right. You know, and that's a thing that that can be fun to play with. Um, and, and I think one of the the questions that I would ask you, dear listeners, um, when you're thinking about writing a secondary world, is think about why you want to go to a secondary world. Yeah. Why Why do you not want to set this in Earth? What is that buying you? What do you buy by keeping it in Earth? You know, in this world and having. Uh, an urban fantasy or something that is, and you can have an urban fantasy that's secondary world, but um, but what do you get by by choosing those locations? What do those things buy you? And I would love to say one of the things because I've thought about this a fair amount. One of the 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 choices you're making when you when you do that, if you set something in this world, the benefit you get is that everyone lives here. And if you say Paris, they'll, you, you're done. You've, you don't have to describe Paris, but they'll go Eiffel Tower, baguette. There's people with berets and mimes, you know. <laughs> um, but, but that's also the problem is that some people like me, even though I've been to Paris, will go, oh, yeah, Paris, mimes and baguettes. Um, whereas really Paris is that's a, that's an awful way of thinking of Paris. <laughs> um, Except the baguettes are really good. <laughs> and so – that's that's it's the double edged sword where you don't have to do as much work to describe like what a car is or like how the dollar works or like you know a lot of those things. The problem is that everyone will come to the table with a different with a different understanding of those things, which means you're writing to many different complex audiences all at once, which can make your life a hell. The hell that you experience writing secondary world fantasy and doing the world building there is that you start from zero. And if I make something, I am kind of beholden to my audience to explain it. And that means world, culture, geography, magic, religion, past religion, mythology, folklore, where the rivers come from. Like you could – I mean – you can kill yourself going down every single rabbit hole, which is why it's better to focus on certain elements um, and make those the focus of the world that you're revealing. Um, And those elements should be, in my opinion, the things that you are passionate about and Mm -hmm. that you feel love towards. Tolkien, you know, made his, as he referred to it, his silly fairy language, and he was into mythology and folklore and so all of Middle-earth is built around language, mythology, the Eddas, and folklore. But that's just because that's what that was his jam. 
if you are into like stamp collecting and butterflies and I don't know, scuba diving, like turn that into, I would read that secondary fantasy, you know, that, that would be Stamps awesome. are going to get yeah. sticky fast. <laughs> See, there's conflict built right into the world. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> so we uh, do need to end. We could talk about this for a while. And, and thank you, huge thank you to Pat for being on here to talk about this for us. Pat, do you have homework for us? Um, one of the things that... I I notice sometimes in a uh, in in f- world building, whether it be urban fantasy or whether it be secondary world fantasy, is f- people feeling the need to do everything in a bag of chips, different and new and strange. Whereas the truth is, if you were to change just one thing in the world. And then follow the permutations logically through the culture. Um, so, like, you know, for example, what if a meteor hit the United States at a certain point in history? Like, well, how might that change things? I don't know. I, I, I've never thought about it. <laughs> Some, someone really ought to write a book about that. Um, I bet it would win a Hugo. Quite a, quite a bit of calculating. Uh, to, uh, yeah. 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 Sorry. Okay. I just ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> the, My uh, stars. The, the the difference engine is a good example of that. It's mm-hmm. like, what if they hadn't given up on this really old first version of a computer? Um, so what I would recommend is think of a thing. And maybe it might be easiest to do this in this world. But uh, here's my example is assume that uh, suddenly – not even all of alchemy is real, just one piece. They find out how to turn lead into gold. What does this do in this world? And the obvious answer is that it does a bunch of really interesting things to economies, but not as much as you might think because we haven't been on the gold standard in years. We exist in a fiat currency. So actually, the U.S. currency doesn't tank, but a bunch of people's mutual funds do. So like conservative, like blue chip stocks are fucked. Um, and so like a lot of rich people lose a ton of money, but that's, that's very basic. Like the fact is computers suddenly get very fast and become more efficient. Suddenly communities that are centering around copper mining collapse because copper isn't worth nearly as much because gold is a much better conductor. Um, but even that is very basic like, what else would happen with this one change? You can go three levels deep, four levels deep until you end up with huge social change. You end up probably with a rise of a huge class of people who can perform this alchemy. And, like, those people are a power. Those mm-hmm. people might become the target of governments. Like, is this, is this suddenly a new valued trade? Or is this owned by corporations? You know, like all of those permutations are what make your story and your world interesting. So I would say pick one thing that might pick one thing and then experiment with how you would permute it in this world. Awesome. That's fantastic homework. So do that and you are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm, mastered by Alex Jackson, with your hosts Dan Wells, Howard Taylor, Mary Robinette Kowal, 
and special guest Patrick Rothfuss. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 